Have you ever had that experience with a song or a photo or a painting where it just took your breath away? It somehow tapped into a feeling or thought or connected with something relevant in your life at that moment. And you can't explain why or how, but its meaning came across to you fully formed. This thing just is. Art's amazing that way. And you don't have to have a degree in art or understand things like lighting technique or chord progression or color theory to have it impact you. And because your connection to that art is personal, it doesn't have to mean the same thing to me as it does to you. Why would it? Why should it? When art is good and special. We all don't have to agree to know it's good and special. One look, and you know, it just is. It's a moment of awe. Oh, wow. Oh, oh my God. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Those clips, in order were of stonemason and gravestone preservationist Brian Post from Standing Stone Landscape Architecture. Artists Jason Alden, Lauren Watros, and Paul Bowen of the drawing studio and friend and cemetery warrior Kate Butt. And what you just heard were their first reactions upon seeing the gravestone of Relief Wilcox Town, who died in 1813 and is buried in Halifax, Vermont. You may recall Relief from The Secret Life of Death, Episode 3, Relief, where I discussed the origin of her name. Her headstone has one of the most beautiful and unique designs I've ever come across. It ticks off all the boxes. The skill of the carving is exquisite. The artistic elements are distinctive and evocative. The visuals hit you all at once, making it clear that this stone was designed not only to impress, but to impart the viewer with a message. This thing is good and special. And this thing just is. And this... Wow. Oh. Wow. ...is the moment of awe. And it's the sound of great art. I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 6, Awe, Part 1. For the purposes of this podcast, I'll generally be discussing and using information from a specific time period in a specific region. The late 18th, early 19th century Anglo-American culture of the upper Connecticut River Valley of New Hampshire and Vermont. Some things I'll cover will be unique to this time and area, but others will be universal and applicable to many other areas and cultures. So, after all that hullabaloo, what does this awe-inspiring gravestone look like? It's cool, all right? Trust me. No? Fine. 
But before we dive into a discussion about Relief's gravestone art, let's establish some of the basics of cemetery and gravestone terminology for the uninitiated taphophile. First, a taphophile is a person who has an interest in cemeteries, gravestones, and funerals. Some definitions qualify that interest as excessive or abnormal. Well, some definitions are jerks. Uh, <clears throat> uh, moving on. Historic grave markers have no uniform height or width, and there's a wide range of sizes and shapes. A lot of it depended on the styles and trends of the time, the quality of the stone being worked, and the ability of the carver as to what the final product would look like. Generally, though, the older stones all have a typical trilobate, or three-dome, shape. If you imagine the profile of a human head and torso, we can break down the anatomy of historic gravestones into three basic parts. The head, if you will, is in the shape of the top half of a circle or a dome. This is called the tympanum and contains the main, most elaborate decorative element or motif. That sits on a broader section, reminiscent of a set of shoulders, which are called, strangely enough, the shoulders, and contain a secondary decoration less bold than that on the tympanum. Then the shoulders lead into a rectangular block of the torso, called the tablet. This is where we see the epitaph for the deceased. Name, date of death, and age at death at the top, and below that, a space where you might have a poem, biblical verse, or some personal information about the deceased. The tablet also provides another space to add more decorative elements. The shape of and art designs on gravestones changes quite dramatically between the 1760s and the 1850s in New England. And knowing the sequence of those changes is useful when trying to figure out the age of a gravestone. For instance, most gravestones prior to 1810 have shoulders that are dome-shaped, like the tympanum, hence the tri-lobate moniker. After 1810, the shoulders become squared off. You can assess a gravestone's relative chronological age based on which stylistic qualities it has. It's a type of archaeological dating known as seriation. This layout and profile is typical of an historic headstone, which sat at the head of a deceased body, and it was usually accompanied by a footstone placed at their feet. This helped delineate the boundaries of a grave so that future interments wouldn't disturb an older one. Footstones were smaller, but maintained the same profile as the headstone. They had minimal to no decoration, usually just the initials of the deceased and a few bits of embellishment. The two stones together make the grave look like a bed, with the headstone as headboard and footstone as footboard. And that's no accident. The irony was not lost on the people of the past. Rest was rest, be it eight hours at night or in eternity. Huh. 
Probably another one there. Kate and I are at the Weeks, or Wicks, Cemetery in Halifax, Vermont. A tiny family cemetery on the side of Deer Run Road. I just noticed the end of this wall, because there's a stone wall that goes all around. And I just noticed how it came to a point. Yeah, it's a funny so little So it's a funny triangle. little, yeah. So it's like such a like neighborhood thing. Mm. And there's a sign on the tree. Relief Wilcoxtown's headstone is carved out of slate, a material common for 1813. But what's so striking is the design on the tympanum, the top. First, the shape of the tympanum is interesting. It's rather tall and pinched, a steep-sided arc with a secondary set of squared-off shoulders about a third of the way down. The main components of the design, a willow, a moon, and stars, are produced by the process of relief carving. Nothing to do with relief the person, haha, where the carver digs into the stone, removing material around the main subject to varying depths, leaving said subject standing proud of the background. Wow! Around the top curve of the tympanum is a line of ten four-pointed stars. Wow! That's amazing. Six on the left and four on the right. I don't think I've ever seen a stone like that, ever. The, uh, Separated I, by a left-facing crescent willow. moon, yeah. which contains a human face broken. in profile. Right. And there's the, stump. the bottom of the tympanum the shows a cut or broken willow tree, the remains of which have fallen off to the left, leaving a visible stump on the right. With all the stars and the moon and the tree, this design is very busy. But the eye is drawn to the middle of the scene, where there is strangely nothing but empty space. The artist creates this via a bit of visual trickery, employing a cross-hatching pattern of concentric circles, starting at the center of the field of vision and working its way out toward the edges. If I can read it. In memory of Miss Relief, is that their name? Yeah. Wife of Captain David D. Town, who died January 7th, 1813, age 45 years. And then I can't quite make out the bottom. It says, may God... Mm. (laughs) It's a little too... Oh, some of it's missing too, unfortunately. If you're a normal person and haven't spent a lot of time in cemeteries, you may now be saying, wow, Gail, this gravestone does sound as cool as you promised, but so what? To answer that, I'm going to have to drag you down an anthropological rabbit hole. Sounds fun, yeah? All right, give me your hand. Let's go. We have to remember that prior to the turn of the mid-19th century, people had no idea there would someday be libraries in every little town with archives of histories and stories of the old days, or even photographs, let alone the internet, where information lives forever. For all they knew, their gravestone was going to be the only place their name might ever be recorded, read, and remembered 
for later generations. And so when it was feasible, they had as much information put on their gravestones as they could. Cemeteries were the libraries, and each gravestone a book commemorating a life, using art and symbology as shorthand to represent personal, social, cultural, and historical information about the deceased. So beyond a name and a date, old gravestones are full of clues. And when you look at enough of any type of thing, you begin to see patterns and commonalities. And of course, the outliers. Relief's gravestone art is one of those outliers. The use of the crescent moon, the stars, and the willow are common enough symbols in gravestone art around her burial place in southeast Vermont, but it's the way they're laid out that's unique. Its subject and quality of carving are unlike anything I've ever seen, and I want to know what all of that says about her. To learn that, we need to know how to read those clues and understand how they relate to her in her region's culture. So, where to start to understand those clues? I'm lucky because I have the perfect classroom just 15 minutes from my house. The Rockingham Meeting House in Rockingham, Vermont. <laughs> you can see where somebody's been under the snow all winter. Hey, no dummy. We've just come off some relatively mild weather for mid-January around here. It's really beautiful how it's up on this tall hill. So the snow is quite patchy in open fields, like those around the Rockingham Meeting House. It's an impressive building. It's it really is. I have never, I've never been here. Really? Yeah, I really? know. Really? I know. Really? I don't know why I haven't. So why not? Been, why not, I said, drag my friend, Teresa Janison, out to take a look. It's, it's pretty much like it was, I think it's 1787. It really looks like it, on the outside, like you've just stepped onto a movie set. The Rockingham Meeting House, a National Register historic landmark, was built between 1787 and 1801. It served as the village's meeting house for civil business and the town's Congregationalist Church a denomination to which most, if not all, the village's early residents belonged. It looks like a big barn. It's tall and rectangular, clad in white clapboards. It's plain, typical of colonial-style architecture. The closest thing it comes to decoration are the humongous, symmetrically placed windows that cover all four sides. It's austere by design and set on the crest of the hill as it is, with its sprawling burying ground out back. The effect is stunning. Walking around the grounds of the meeting house, it becomes apparent how different our lives are structured today. If you think about it, it's a little strange to have one building serve the central secular and religious function in town, and have a large burying ground plunked right in the middle of a public space. But for the early communities of New England, it was an idiosyncrasy of town planning inspired by their Puritan forebears. 
By the 1760s, the town of Rockingham, for instance, was being settled by Anglo-American migrants moving north from southern New England, a region that was heavily influenced by English Puritans. As we all know, the Puritans left England for North America so that they could pursue their strict, rigid religious lifestyle away from their theological overlords, the Church of England. And so when it came time for them to begin their settlements in Massachusetts Bay and elsewhere, they decided they wanted to do things their way, the right way, and created the ideal town, one that was literally centered around their religion. Partly out of their desire to form their own destinies, and partly out of the practicalities of settling in a land to which they came ill-prepared to live, lacking things like food, shelter, good relations with all the indigenous people they displaced with said settlement, the Puritans' first and biggest building in town was their meeting house, a multi-purpose building for town meetings and religious congregation. Since the main building in town was a secular and religious combo, so too was the town's public space, often containing a place for burials, situated on property adjacent to this meeting house slash house of worship on a piece of municipal, unconsecrated ground located in the center of town. In old texts, this town land set aside for burials was often referred to as a burying ground, differentiating them from graveyards, which are associated with churches. Today, burying grounds are what we commonly call cemeteries. Though schisms in the Puritan church and later migrations of non-Puritan settlers created a more diverse religious landscape, relatively, the Puritans, who later morphed into the Congregationalists, no longer had a stranglehold on the dictates of New England politics and society, but some of their town planning and burial traditions persisted. For instance, have you ever gone to an old New England cemetery and noticed that all the graves are oriented in one direction but are strangely facing away from the road? If you look closely, all those old graves will be oriented with the headstone to the west and the footstone to the east, aligning the body to face the rising morning sun. It was a holdover of Puritan theology that said that on the day of judgment, as the sun rose in the east, those slated to be saved would stand facing the dawn and follow the sun as it trekked across the sky on this, the last day, before going to their eternal rest in the west as the sun set forever. And for all those not saved? I'm sure they got a postcard from their relatives in paradise saying, Wish you were here. Thin this stone is. I know, Isn't I that amazing? I can't believe that it's... And it's upright. And back at the Rockingham Meeting House, Teresa and I are looking at a field of gravestones, which are all aligned east-west, mind you. And it becomes apparent that the oldest ones here, between the 1770s and the 1810s, are all made of slate. It's almost in perfect shape. It's got this little crack along the face, but it... The predominance of slate is a mixture of choice, tradition, 
and preservation. It's done really well. And it's got this little etching all along the border. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. In fact, throughout the upper Connecticut River Valley of Vermont and New Hampshire, late 18th, early 19th century gravestones are almost 100% made of slate, a fine-grained, foliated, or layered, metamorphosed sedimentary rock. Its color can be highly variable, depending on inclusions in the stone, which itself depends on the region from which it's quarried. This can be useful in determining the source of a stone. While very early gravestones were made from slate imported from England, later stones were carved from locally sourced slate. There are many sources in western Vermont, for instance. And though slate can come in a range of colors, gravestones are almost exclusively carved from gray slate. It was the stone of choice in New England going back to the 1600s, though there are pockets in Connecticut and Rhode Island where you'll see a locally quarried reddish sandstone used. Slate was utilized for a long time for gravestones, in part because it was a tradition brought over with the first English settlers. But slate had other practical virtues. It's easy to split into broad, flat sheets that provide a ready-made, workable surface, and it could be carved onto with relative ease as well. But as trends and tastes changed, and different materials became more economical and fashionable, people began to opt for other stones for their grave markers. Around the 1820s, in the upper Connecticut River Valley, earlier in cities and in southern New England, we see a transition from using slate to make gravestones to exclusively using marble. So the type of material a gravestone is made from can tell you its relative age in the same way its shape can. Marble had a lot of the same practical qualities as slate. It was relatively easy to get, with many quarries opening in central Vermont. Easy to cut, easy to carve, and when new, was a stunning bright white a very modern choice. Gravestones, however, are not only about remembrance, they're also about status. Humans never miss an opportunity to fan their peacock feathers for one another, and as tacky as it might seem, how big a stone is, what a gravestone's made of, along with what's carved on it, all became ways of showcasing social, cultural, spiritual, or personal status. First, even the presence of a gravestone is assuming a lot. Depending on when we're talking about in a town's history, there may not have been anyone for hundreds of miles who had the ability, the tools, or material to carve a stone marker. And depending on a family's fortune, they may not have been able to afford such a luxury. So the earliest graves were identified with simple wooden markers. Markers that would have rotted away over time, leaving graves that today appear unmarked. And sometimes those cash-strapped and or practical bereaved would mark a grave with simple field stones, rocks probably pulled out of the ground while they were digging the grave. Occasionally, 
Those rocks will have brief, homemade carvings on a face, but most of the time, they're blank lumps. Those are my favorite. But the presence or absence of a grave marker may also be a matter of preservation. All historic gravestones, no matter what material they're made from, have been exposed to the elements, natural and man-made. Both slate and marble stones are at the mercy of weather and climate. Seasonal freezing and thawing breaks apart the layers of the slate, and acid rain erodes the surface of the marble, breaking it down into bits of sugary flakes. Old gravestones are also susceptible to tree falls that can pulverize them into dust, and to the growth of mold and lichen, which not only obscure their inscriptions, but further break down their surfaces. And, as always, humans are a-holes. And for some reason, beating up gravestones has always been an exciting pastime for degenerate youth, after they've run out of widows to rob or orphaned children to trip, I guess. So, if you encounter a broken headstone, or one that's so covered with lichen and mold that it's become impossible to read, I beg you, educate yourself before attempting any restorations. There are professionals who can be hired to undertake the most difficult cases, as well as volunteer groups that do nothing but help restore old gravestones. There's the New Hampshire Old Gravestone Association and the Vermont Old Cemetery Association. Both are active and busy with restoration projects, but they have websites and Facebook pages with lots of helpful members who can advise you how best to address a gravestone restoration. Okay, the PSA is done. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. So taking what we've learned about what an historic gravestone might look like, how and where a burying ground is laid out, what stone material might be used, and what the simple fact of having a grave marker at all can tell us, what can we deduce about Relief Wilcox Town based on her amazing gravestone? Well, we know her name. Mrs. Relief, wife of Captain David D. Town. She died January 17, 1813, at 45 years. From this, we can extrapolate she was born about 1768. But for context for the rest, some genealogy and historical research is required. First, it helps to know that Relief and her first husband, William Wilcox, Jr., moved from north-central Rhode Island to Halifax, Vermont, sometime in the early 1770s. They came with William Jr.'s entire immediate family, his parents, nine siblings and their families, as well as a number of in-laws. Their huge extended clan settled just northeast of the center of town, populating it to such an extent that it became known as the Wilcox District, around what is today Deer Park Road. The Wilcoxes were some of the earliest Anglo-American settlers in Halifax, and as they set up their farms throughout their section of town, they also set up a family cemetery in the middle of their family land. It's now called the Weeks or Wicks Cemetery, 
named for the family of Benjamin Weeks and Elsie Wilcox Weeks, whose two children were the first to be buried there. Theirs is a very small family cemetery containing no more than 20 marked and unmarked graves, all Wilcox family members, save for four recent interments. This is a very different type of layout than what we saw at the Rockingham Meeting House, 40 miles north. The Weeks or Wicks Cemetery was not associated with a town building or placed on town property, because the Wilcoxes were Baptists, not Congregationalists, and didn't adhere strictly to the Puritan influences of town planning like they did in Rockingham. In fact, setting up small family cemeteries on family land was a Baptist tradition in Rhode Island the Wilcoxes brought with them to Vermont, and continued it in their new town. The graves in the Weeks or Wicks Cemetery are all oriented in the same east-west direction like in Rockingham, as the Baptists believed in resurrection and life everlasting as well. Relief died in 1813, so the fact that her stone is made from slate fits in the timeline of the 1820 transition from slate to marble. But withstanding the elements for over 200 years as it has, the slate is showing signs of deterioration, with lichen covering the bottom and the rusting of natural iron inclusions in the slate flaking off fragments of the stone's face. Aside from all that information, though, we're kind of back to where we began at the top of the show. What about the information that goes beyond what we can read on the gravestone and out of a book? The craftsmanship of the carving, the unique and symbolic subject matter of the design makes such an immediate and indelible impression. Wow. Oh. Wow. I can't help but think it has something to do with relief herself and her life. Be it social, cultural, spiritual, or personal, or some mix of the four, I'm not sure. But I want to find out. Special thanks for this episode go to Jennifer Vanell of Badger Studios and Gail Golick for musical arrangement and performance. Kate Butt and Teresa Janison, my cemetery warriors and most excellent pals. And to interviewees, Brian Post of Standing Stone Landscape Architecture of Springfield, Vermont, and Jason Alden, Lauren Watros and Paul Bowen of The Drawing Studio in Brattleboro, Vermont. You'll be hearing more from all of them later in parts two and three, so stay tuned. For more information about this show, visit our website at thesecretlifeofdeath.com. And for weekly extras and fun photos, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy this show on any of these podcast platforms. Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Radio Public.